0: Welcome back to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dalibor Rohak, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and author of Indefensive Globalism, a book that came out about nine months ago that I think you're going to find very interesting. I really have enjoyed the book Indefensive Globalism, and we're going to get into it in a minute. Dalibor, thanks so much for being here. Dan, thank you so much for having me. So, Dalibor, first tell us a little bit about who is Dalibor Rojak. I was born and brought up in Slovakia. And
1: for me, the fall of communism was sort of a defining moment of my young intellectual life. I was six at the time, lived through the post-communist transitions. And that way I got, I suppose, attracted to social sciences and economics and international relations to see these countries in Eastern Europe go through their paths towards free markets and democracy each in in its own way, I think it really triggered my interest in these questions and, and and so I was trained as an economist, and I drifted more and more towards these questions of international order and and the role that international institutions, the European Union, the transatlantic partnership uh, plays in sort of you know embedding good domestic policies. I think that's that's the sort of broad theme that goes through my work and and so I'm at AEI where I've been covering transatlantic relations, Central European politics lately, questions of rule of law in places like like Hungary and Poland. And so this book is, I suppose, a part of these efforts, complementary to some of the some, some of the other
0: stuff I've done. And, and Dalvar, you wrote a previous book called uh, Towards an Imperfect Union, a conservative case for the EU. Yes. So I have to say um you know I'm
1: at AEI uh, I'm a member of the Mont Society, I've been sort of brought up in this sort of classical liberal free market tradition, and as you know, there are many Eurosceptics as part of that tradition, both in the UK and also in the United States. And I always felt a tension between that sort of Euroscepticism and my own experience in Central and Eastern Europe, where really the EU was not this sort of socialist monster trying to regulate us to death, but it was more of a of an institutional device that enabled us to embrace free markets and and an accountable government and the rule of law. And I wrote this book just before the Brexit referendum, actually, trying to explain to my friends on the sort of conservative free market right that the really European project was an important part of the system of institutions that they should care about and they should defend and maybe reform when necessary. But this sort of reckless effort to
0: dismantle the EU or, or leave the EU was not being helpful at the time. So, you've written this book in defense of globalism. What prompted you to write this book? Well, in recent years, we've seen a sort of resurgence of, of nationalism
1: on the political right, a certain backlash against globalization. You know, that, that exists on the political left as well. There is this sort of longstanding tradition of distrust in international agencies, right? There's sort of anti-globalist movement on the left, but but we've seen it grow on the, on the right, particularly with Brexit and the election of Donald Trump. We've now had, I suppose, uh, two years of the National Conservatism Conferences organized by the philosopher Yoram Hazoni So there's this effort to create on the political right an agenda that's built around the nation-state that sometimes really almost become zero-ethnocentric in his nature. And so I'm trying to provide an answer to that. Of course, some of these things are just attempts to rationalize Trump or whatever he's doing. But I think there is, on the part of some people, a, a sort of sincere effort to move away from what, what has been the consensus on the right for, for many years. And I'm trying to respond to that by saying, A, that nation-states and national sovereignty are not a given. The history of the West, unlike this fiction that that some conservatives have in mind, is not the history of sovereign nation states. Since the fall of the Roman Empire, there has been this tension in European history in in balancing unity and diversity. And you had these various federal and quasi-federal forms of governance throughout the West. And it's only in the 19th century that you have something like the modern nation state. And, And the apex of the modern nation state in the first half of the 20th century, comes with world conflicts, wave of protectionism and destruction that really is without precedent in human history. And, and so there are good reasons why in the after-war, post-war period, the United States and its allies tried to create this institutional infrastructure with NATO and the European project and many other institutions to make sure that the economies of of the Western world remain open and integrated, that the world remains at peace. And by and large, this has been a success, right? And of course, the system needs to be updated and reformed in various ways, and we can get into into the details of that. But the sort of idea that we can somehow go back to a world of sovereign nation states and we'll each do things on our own and we'll each sort of pursue our narrow material interests, I think is, is an idea that has been discredited and and perhaps needs to be discredited again.
0: So when you say the term globalism, what do you mean by
1: globalism? So by globalism is a term that was sort of invented by its enemies, right? And I'm using it as a sort of catch-all term for various forms of international and transnational cooperation. Some of it is formalized and involves organizations or formal treaties or sort of, you know, multilateral platforms. It includes military alliances like NATO. It includes various regional efforts of economic integration. But it also includes a spectrum of other institutional forms. And that's sort of one of the arguments of the book, that we are not talking about the top-down imposition by global elites trying to replace the nation-state with a global government, right? That was perhaps the hope of the so-called world federalists, around the time when the UN was being set up and some of these institutions were, were coming into, into being. But but in reality, what we have is this sort of hugely diverse spectrum of institutions and organizations and platforms of cooperation. Some of them include private sector organizations. When you think about technical standards, right, it's not a multilateral government effort primarily when you think about... The way you know airlines are sort of organized and and self-regulating uh, internationally, this is a sort of private sector effort. Uh, you have various sort of transnational forms of cooperation between state governments, for example, the Great Lakes Charter, which includes u s states and Canadian provinces. So there's this whole ecosystem out there, which I think is receiving sometimes unjustifiably bad press on the political right. So I'm trying to sort of, you know, make the case for why we should not be throwing out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. What,
0: What are the critiques on the right of multilateral institutions? Well, so some of them I think are
1: justified. Some of them revolve around the fact that, A, these organizations were often set up a long time ago. They have not necessarily always adapted to present-day realities. When you think about the Bretton Woods institutions, for example, well, you know, the reality of the late 40s, early 50s was one in which you would have fixed exchange rates and you would have, you know, IMF set up to essentially manage that system and provide liquidity to countries in need. And, you know, like we don't have that system for 40 something or even more 50, 50 years now, yet many of these institutions have sort of you know shifted their focus and, and sometimes expanded their mandate you, know, you have things like the un economic commission for europe which you know had its rationale in, in in the 40s and 50s but it's sort of harder to to understand what it is that's that's actually happening in its corridors in in geneva these days so so i think there is the sort of you know arguments surrounding bureaucratic ossification and the sort of lack of Adaptation, which is a valid one. But I think there are then arguments that, that to me make less sense intellectually speaking. Like the notion that by joining international organizations or or various institutions, we are surrendering sovereignty and our ability to govern ourselves. And and that to me is a mistaken view. Because if anything, when you look at Brexit, for example, what we've learned is that yes, you can leave these organizations as like the UK has left the European Union. But by virtue of the world we are living in, a world that's integrated and tightly connected, where business models and and capital flows pay little attention to national borders, you know, you'll end up being connected to that organization anyway. So when the Brits leave the EU, and even if no trade agreement is negotiated, tariff barriers come back, British businesses will still want to operate in Europe. And they'll still be affected by, by European rules. The only difference is that the British won't have any say in Brussels anymore. So I think that's the general problem with this idea that we can somehow disengage and there'll be no consequences. You know, in a world that's as tightly connected, you know, people laughed at Thomas Friedman when he wrote um, the Flat World book. But, but I think there is a lot of truth to that, that we are living in a, in a, in a global economy where business models and technologies... Just make it, you know, next to impossible for countries to sort of go back to the world as it was in the 19th century, unless you're North
0: Korea. I agree with that, Dalibor. I also think you talk in your book about the fact that conservatives make an exception for NATO. Can you talk about why that is? Yeah, I think you know,
1: like this has been a an item of bipartisan consensus for 70 years for very good reasons, and you know, NATO has kept Western Europe free of, of Soviet influence. It has facilitated post-communist transitions in, in Central and Eastern Europe. I mean, if it weren't for the security guarantees or even the prospect of, of joining the alliance, you know, I don't think Poland and Baltic states and, and, and Central Europe would be as successful at, at embracing democracy, to be much more vulnerable to, to Russian interference. It would be a dramatically worse place than, than, than it is today. So, so I think that, that's widely understood on the political right, but I think it comes into tension with, with this notion that, uh, that sovereignty is the ultimate underloyed good, right? Because if you do care about sovereignty, you know, it's hard to imagine a sort of more stringent constraint on your self-governance than this than sort of open-ended commitment to come to the defense of your allies, right? So, so people would complain about, you know, EU regulations on light bulbs and the shape of bananas. But, I mean, those are trivial with the sort of commitment to actually like send troops to fight for Estonia, and yet generations of conservatives have been pretty comfortable with the latter for very good reasons. And you know, if if, if you're okay with NATO, I mean, there isn't a sort of qualitative difference between NATO and and these other forms of cooperation, especially
0: among democracies. So, so that's part of the argument I'm trying to make in the book. You have a discussion about some of the criticisms around cross-border flows and sort of the nationalist critique. Talk about what is a nationalist?
1: Obviously, nationalism comes in various flavors. It has to be distinguished from patriotism in the sense of one's love for one country or a sort of emotional attachment to to one's country. Uh, The notion is that somehow the nation-state. I think this is common to, to various forms of nationalism. Is that the nation-state sort of reflects some sort of deeper truth about this population? That that there is a sort of connection. This is the way Yoram Haselny talks about it in, in his book, *The Virtues of Nationalism*. That the nation-state is somehow an extension of pre-existing deep bonds between populations in, in various places. That you had the uh, the natural bonds provided by the family, by the tribe. And then you had sort of alliances of tribes, and that led to, to the nation state. And that's a completely ahistorical view. And I think it's been so sort of demonstrated by many historians that this is not how nation states, uh, modern era nation states, were created, right? You had these political projects aimed at homogenization of certain territories, getting rid of the pre existing bonds that existed within these societies. And therefore, there is nothing intrinsically praiseworthy or sort of nation states, therefore, are not sort of, you know, God-given entities. They're not the end point of history, which is not to say that they are totally arbitrary and you can get rid of them. But I think they need to be treated as, you know, one of a spectrum of different forms of governance. And therefore, this sort of veneration for the nation state is, is not justified.
0: Would you argue, Dalibor, that your central argument is that globalism, as you've described it, has led to peace, prosperity and progress is that a way to describe in kind of a nutshell your argument yes yeah that
1: that we saw in in a sense a cluster of institutional innovation around these organizations and treaties you know from the WTO to standardization agencies to NATO and that that those institutions have been really central to the creation of of the sort of you know interconnected globalized world. And that world, I think, demonstrably has the hugely beneficial effects for humankind.
0: I've been doing a number of things on the United Nations and the multilateral development banks. My view is, this is sort of Dan's simplistic and slightly provocative way of thinking about this, that these institutions are force multipliers of a Western form of globalization. They have Western DNA in them, but that requires active leadership. The term I'll use with certain American on political audiences, we need to ride herd in kind of a Western cowboy <laughs> terminology. We got to ride herd on these institutions for these th- otherwise. And you talk about this in the book that if we withdraw, draw, there are other forces that will fill the vacuum in these institutions. I would also argue that in the last 10 or 15 years, for example, China has become far more Clever, far more adept, and far more capable of operating in the multilateral institutions. 15 years ago, maybe 10 years ago, of the big 15 UN agencies, they, they led one of them, UNIDO, of which the United States, as far as I can tell, isn't even a member of. As of today, they're in charge of four of the 15. You may have may or may not have been following this because it's very niche. The issue of WIPO, there was the competition for the WIPO presidency. So I was very active in the WIPO issue. There are something like 180 international institutions. So at any one time, there's you know, 10 or 15 or 20 ongoing elections for these things at any one time. Well, I was in a meeting and somebody said, we're going to lose WIPO to China. And I was like, what's WIPO? So I started Googling around. And it turns out there was nothing in simple English that described what the heck WIPO was. WIPO is, in American idiomatic English, is the Major League Baseball Commission or the FIFA of patents or inventions or intellectual property. So it sort of adjudicates intellectual property and whether or not our ideas is something that should be recognized everywhere. Why would it be a problem if China had control of WIPO? Well, two reasons. One is every patent and trade office in the world is now connected electronically to the mothership in Geneva. So if I'm the Chinese CEO of WIPO, it's highly likely I'm going to hire the very fine telecommunications firm Huawei to plug every patent and trade office in the world into Geneva. I'm sure there'll be no leakage between D.C. and Geneva via the plugging in of Huawei to, to plug in all the patent and trade offices, right? And being facetious. Second, all these blueprints, which as you and I both know is electronic. We send some electronic file over the Huawei wires or wireless, whatever, or the system. Then the Chinese CEO of WIPO hires a very fine cloud computing company that hosts all the electronic files of WIPO in Beijing because, as you know, all this kind of cloud computing rules say, well, you got to have all the files in some one particular country. So it's like the fox guarding the henhouse. house. Well, you can't put that in a bumper sticker. It's hard to hell as explain this. You need about five minutes to explain all this stuff. So I went online, Dalibor, and it turns out there was nothing in simple English that explained what the heck WIPO was. It's a real niche topic. So I put together a WIPO for dummies just to explain this and who was running and who voted and why the heck it matters. I wrote a couple articles in The Hill. I convened two meetings, one in December and one in January for the Trump administration. And the American Business community to say, if you don't want a Chinese candidate, we need to come up with a consensus as who we're going to support. That's not Chinese and there are nine of them. So we need to figure this out. So I will take a teeny bit of credit for helping, you know, having a happy outcome. But what my conclusion was from that experience was first, we have to explain to people what the value of this stuff is. So one of the reasons I like this book was you have to continually make the case for multilateral institutions. They're not good. I worked at the World Bank Group. They're terrible. They speak in technocratic gobbledygook. Much of the culture is very uncomfortable kind of selling themselves, at least to sort of political publics, especially in the United States. They often deal with very technical terms and attract very technical people who value technical expertise. So they don't like marketing stuff or it's seen as too soft or fluffy. So it's not valued in their culture. And they certainly don't like, quote unquote, politics, if I can put it that way, or they shut they're afraid of it. So. Nobody stands up for these organizations because, and they're hard to explain. And so the folks who set them up understood why and spent political capital setting them up. There was a reason for them. But I think what's happened though, is China is putting forward capable candidates. They're making strategic donations to these institutions. They're sending capable people more so than frankly, the United States is at times And they're not playing games with things like paying dues or pulling out of institutions. They're joining institutions. And so, you know, the national security strategy of the United States, Trump's national security strategy says one of its four pillars is we're going to compete and win in multilateral institutions. I'm happy about that. And I think this book, your book in defense of globalism, in essence, makes the intellectual case as to why we need to compete and win in multilateral institutions. I think you're absolutely right that conservatives have a very conflicted and complex relationship with multilateral institutions. They're either concerned about issues of sovereignty in the United States. These things are seen as wooly headed. I've had senior Trump administration officials tell me, well, these things, these multilateral development banks, they don't really matter. Well, having worked for one, I can tell you, we underestimate their power. I'm Catholic. These, these institutions have sort of like the power of sort of the secular Vatican. These institutions have sort of a secular imprimatur And if you're in Africa, if you're in Latin America, there's an institution called the EBRD that you know what that is, Dalibor, but most people in Washington don't know what the EBRD is, which is sort of the multilateral development bank regionally focused on the former Soviet Union and Central and Eastern Europe, more or less. Very influential in that region. The leader of the EBRD is treated like a head of state when it visits Slovakia, or when that person visits Kazakhstan or Mongolia. In the case of Kazakhstan or Mongolia or Ukraine, it's the largest and oftentimes one of the largest investors, one of the largest economic players in the country in a positive way. They provide advice that the, these governments look to, even if they're sort of autocratic and not sort of our favorite governments. They often will take those institutions' advice more seriously. These institutions have influence, set standards, have money, and have de- access to really sensitive data. So if we're not controlling them, we're stupid. Because otherwise, China's going to fill the void, which is your argument. I 100% agree with you. So we have to completely up our game. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted you in here. So could you talk a little bit about the consequences of, of the West not playing fully in the multilateral system? I've made my case, but you, you, you agree with what I'm saying, Galibor?
1: I, I agree almost completely with everything you, you, you said. One of the most high-profile examples of this problem that you described is, is the World Health Organization. It's not a coincidence that, that China got successively, you know, like their candidates elected. I mean, the, the current one is, is not, not a Chinese national, but, but he was supported by China. You know, he's there partly because the Americans didn't have their representative on the executive board of, of WHO for, for a while. And now we are sort of, you know, taken aback when we see that, that the organization has been sort of hijacked by China, I think it's a significant problem. The response to that has to be engagement. I'm glad. Yes, the example of WIPO is, is an encouraging one. I think it would require this administration or any future administration that comes much heavier investment into sort of day to day politics of these organizations. You got
0: to go have coffee with people. You've got to go sit. George H. W. Bush was the U.S. ambassador to the UN, and he spent all of his time working it. He went and he had people for lunch and dinner. A lot of this is personal relationships. You've got, we've got to send good, capable people and then you got to work it. I mean, we still are a preeminent power, but we just can't operate as if we're going to win every time at these things. And China is, has upped its game, has learned how to do this. So if we don't play, China will fill the void. Are we okay with? the DNA of these institutions being radically transformed by increased Chinese influence, I think ultimately we're going to say no. And if we say well, we're just going to quit, that's not an answer. This is a little bit to your point earlier about, uh, to, you know, to the point about Brexit. It's a real problem. If I may,
1: it wasn't a coincidence that she that went to Davos in January 2017 and made this speech defending globalization, essentially, and and presenting China as this supposedly a responsible stakeholder in the national system. You know, it was a few days after after President Trump's inauguration, there was this widespread fear in Europe that the Americans were sort of, you know, giving up on the international system. Out. And even now with, like, I, I think the WHO played a really awful role in, in what unfolded this year with the COVID-19 pandemic. But when you are just going to withdraw I mean the notion that the Europeans, who will be now left there on their own with the Chinese, will will somehow then like welcome U.S. leadership on other issues in the future. I think it's fanciful. You know, Senator Josh Hawley had this op-ed a few weeks ago on how the U.S. should withdraw from the World Trade Organization and then set up a parallel structure with like-minded powers. Like there'll be no like-minded countries if you if you do this, right? If you sort of like give up on what has been the sort of cornerstone of the world trading system, that's you know that's the easiest way of, of of making sure that like nobody in Europe ever speaks to you again.
0: I think we we don't understand how important this is to other folks. So I think it's a a challenge. I found this book in in defense of globalism to be very interesting. It's a very compelling read. I strongly recommend it. And uh, Dalber, I really appreciate you taking the time. What's the message you want to leave? Folks who listen to this podcast,
1: I think it's worth recognizing that the world has indeed changed since the late 40s and 50s. That therefore these international agencies and treaties and alliances have to adjust to this new world. So, so it's not an unreasonable critique that many conservatives are making. I don't even think that multilateralism should be treated as as a good in and it by itself. You know, maybe some agencies do indeed need to be winded down and maybe we should move on. But it has to be done in a way that you know makes sure that liberal democracies are still writing the rules. It has to be done in, in concert with our allies. It has to be done based on a bit you of know, strategy and understanding of what our interests are, and it can't be done in a in a sort of haphazard
0: way, like we've seen in many instances in recent years. Well, look, Dalibor, I really appreciate it. Thanks for the time, and I'm really grateful, and I really, rec- I can't recommend this book more highly, In Defense of Globalism by Dalibor Rohak. Thanks, Dalibor, for being on today. Dan, thank you so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more.